Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Joke. Hey, Christopher. A few days ago, on Canada Day, we kicked off our special two-part celebration of Canadian music, the stories behind the greatest Canuck classics of all time, <laughs> told by the people who created the songs. If you missed it, check it out now on the iHeartRadio app. Well, maybe not now, after you finish listening to this episode. Uh, and you'll hear the stories right. behind Life is a Highway by Tom Cochran. Great story. Tom Sawyer by Rush. In My Blood by Sean Mendez. That's a great story. And many other wonderful songs. Today, it's another collection of fascinating stories. By the way, Tom, that includes the stories behind a couple of massive worldwide hits written by Canadian songwriters that were hits for international superstars. Right. But first, let's get started with what is arguably... And boy, we love to argue about these things, don't we? That's right. The greatest of all Canadian rock songs, American Woman by the Guess Who. A song that hit the charts 50 years ago. Now, Tom, just a few weeks ago, uh, was able to speak with both Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman separately about the creation of the song. That's right. <laughs> anyway, the long version of that conversation is available as a special podcast-only edition. And, uh, right, of course, right now, let's play some of the best parts. We begin with Tom talking to Burton Cummings. So, Burton, let's talk, because we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of American Woman, I'm saying top three Canadian songs of all time, maybe number one. Tell me what you remember from the recording of that song, how that song came to be? Um, for the most part, that whole thing was jammed on stage at a place called the Broom and Stone, which was a curling rink outside Toronto, I think somewhere around Mississauga. And we were doing two shows one night, and between shows I was outside kind of bartering with this kid that, to get some old Gene Vincent records off him. <laughs> we were trying to strike up a deal, and I was arguing about this and that and the other thing, and I heard the other three guys start up our second set. And I said to this kid, oh, goodness, man, I'm supposed to be on stage. I got to get in there and get up on stage. So I ran in, and the guys, the other three guys, in my absence had started up a little jam and Randy had this Randy had the groove going he had this great groove going he didn't want to stop because the guys were grooving at that point so I just started making stuff up right on the spot stream of consciousness Bob Dylan moment you know whatever comes out of your head just sing it and all that stuff was on the spot. War machines, ghetto scenes, colored lights can hypnotize, sparkle someone else's eyes. And here's the thing. Everybody thought it was political. It was not political. We had been touring in the States on the strength of these eyes and laughing and undone and maybe even no time. And I noticed that in the States, the girls seemed to grow up quicker, not grow up quicker, but started to look older at a younger age. So what I was thinking when I was making those words up, what I was thinking was, Canadian woman, I prefer you. And what <laughs> came out of my mouth was, American woman, stay away from me. So right. it was never, in my head, it was never political. But when the record was released... 
the Vietnam War was at a particularly bad point of escalation. And there were a lot of anti-American protesters, um, anti-war protesters in the States. Everybody read their own meaning into it. And because of the turbulence of the times, we had a number one record. Wow. So much information there from Burton Cummings about how American Woman was created and also how the song was not meant to be political. Well, in a way, it was like the song wasn't meant to be anything. It just came about. It sounds like it had, you know, kind of an immaculate conception. Um, They were jamming and it all fell into place and Burton threw out those lines and they went, yeah, those are cool. And and it became what it was. There wasn't a lot of sort of critical thinking involved in the creation, I don't think, from, from at least from what they say. Right. Anyway, Randy does see the song as political, very influenced by the times, which is quite understandable. I mean, listen to him tell the story and notice how his version changes in some minor ways and in some very significant ways from Burton's. Here's Randy. We had been touring the States. Uh, there was a fear of us being drafted. We had green cards. And being drafted then, would believe it was not a nice thing. They just put you in a uniform, sent you to Fort Bragg, and you went to fight in Vietnam. So we came back to Canada. We had some gigs. Uh, got a gig offered at the um, in Kitchener-Waterloo at a curling rink, curling club. And in the middle of uh, one of the songs, I broke a string. And uh, that was a three-hour dance. It was no big deal. And I remember Burton singing the mic, we're going to take a break while Randy changes the string. And so we you know, we'd take a break every hour. <laughs> anyway. So the band went down to the crowd. I stayed on stage. I had no roadie, no tuner, no spare guitar. And I, had, I put a, a new string on my guitar. I was kneeling in front of Burton's electric piano, tuning to it, because we used to tune to his piano every night. And as I was doing that, I just moved my fingers around and started to play certain frets, like the second fret, the, the fifth fret, the seventh fret, all in the key of E. And I started to play it faster and faster and ended up going dun, 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 dun. And I noticed some heads in the audience snapped around. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't forget this riff. It's so simple. And it's, it's, it's not even a riff. It's like the guy tuning up. And, that, and then I stood up and started playing it. And I, I get the drummer on Gary Peterson. Jim Cale comes on. <laughs> and we're playing this riff. And so Burton's out in the parking lot meeting a guy. I think was buying Gene Vincent records or something from a guy. And uh, he didn't recognize the song. So he didn't think we were on stage. And wow. I think somebody said to him, why aren't you on stage with the band? And I remember him coming in the back door through the crowd on stage saying, what is this? And I said, just play something. And he played a solo. He played a harmonica solo. He played a flute solo, a piano solo. And I yelled out, sing something. And I, the first words he sang was American woman, stay away from me. He sang it three or four times. We soloed. He sang it again. Uh, we noticed an electricity on the, on the stage uh, between us and the crowd and that this was being made up because yeah. everything we played that night was records. And we, you know, in those days, you need to sound like the Beach Boys when you played a Beach Boys song. You need to sound like the Beatles. And so suddenly there was this, our own <laughs> sound. I mean, we had these eyes and, you know, shaking over a couple other songs. So, but this was a new sound like nobody had ever heard before. Right. And, and then it, it developed. And then Burton kept adding words. I remember him coming to me in the car saying, how about if I add in ghetto scenes and war machines? I go, great. Well, that's kind of heavy, but that's great. You know, let's do that. There's a lot of discussion, of course, what the lyrics mean. And Burton has gone on the record to say they kind of don't mean anything. They're stream of consciousness. I'm more or less talking about the difference between 
um, American women and Canadian women. But obviously, you know, it seems to me that based on all the things that you had seen and the fact that you were, you know, you had your green cards, but you were afraid that if you crossed that border, you were going to be drafted, that that stuff would play into your psyche and Burton's psyche as well. Yes, because everywhere we went, it was the big Statue of Liberty and that poster of Uncle Sam with the, with the Stars and Stripes top hat on, pointing, saying, Uncle Sam wants you. We toured the States, and literally, we'd go to a town anywhere, Chicago, Iowa, Illinois, Minneapolis, anywhere we went. We were the only guys in these towns between 18 and 35. All the other guys who were drafted, they were sent, sent to the jungle to fight the war. The women are kind of going crazy, like there's new guys in town who are like 22 years of age and stuff. Also, there was the fear of if the MPs come and get you, the guys in the white helmets, and you're drafted, you're gone. You have no say, nothing. You've got a green card, which means you can live in the States, pay taxes in the States, work in the States, and be drafted and sent to the jungle. We had a fear at the border. We almost got drafted. We turned around and went back to Canada, and that's how we got the gig in the uh, curling rink in Kitchener-Waterloo. I remember phoning the agency and them saying, there's one gig tonight. Wow. And we took that gig so we get enough money to go back to Winnipeg. So we did turn in our green cards when we got back to Canada. Yeah. So that's interesting how Randy Bachman sees the song as far more political than Burton did. That's fascinating when you got have the guy who wrote the lyrics disagreeing with the other guy in the band. But listen to this next clip, Christopher, where I asked Burton if the story about the White House is true or not. Okay, so it's a story about... Well, you'll hear me asking in the question, but it's a, the story about whether or not the guess who was told not to play American woman at the White House by Pat Nixon, Richard Nixon's wife, okay? So Burton blames the whole thing as a stunt by their manager. Have a listen. It's all nonsense. We had a really time that was pretty small-minded. Uh, he thought it would be a great publicity stunt if we told the press that the White House asked us not to play American Woman. That's all BS. We were never asked not to play American Woman. Right. And we should have played it because it was probably one of the reasons we were asked to play at the White House anyway. And uh, it backfired on us. And actually, the, the whole White House appearance itself backfired on us. Rolling Stone took us to task. Rolling Stone crucified us for, for really? playing for the Nixons because the Nixons weren't all that popular uh, yeah. with, with Vietnam and everything else. Uh, we never should have gone there. We never should have been there. And, and the fact is, if we were going to go anyway, we damn sure should have played American Woman. So let me clear that up for good. Yeah. Well, okay, so we got to roll this back a little bit, Tom, because there's a couple of things that sort of bother me about this. Um, first of all, it's completely logical that if Pat Nixon had any awareness of what the song said, that she would have, have asked them not to play it. Or that some other lower level functionary would have gone, ahem, right. you're not going to walk into the White House and sing, you know, American Woman, Get Away From Me. That is not going to fly. That makes perfect sense. But... <laughs> On a parallel track, the idea that a manager would cook it up and go, hey, I got an idea. Tell him that you weren't, you know, that whole shtick, right? Listen, see. Both of the <laughs> – anyway, you know what? I think it's kind of pick your story here, really, because both both are absolutely, totally credible. Now, as to the conclusion that they were skewered, 
Yes, and you can see why. This was 1970. What was going on in 1970? Well, aside from the Vietnam War raging away, there were secret bombings in Cambodia which had been exposed to the public. And on May 4th, a recently celebrated anniversary, the 50th anniversary of Kent State, four students were gunned down and it was all heaped at Nixon's feet. So, yeah, you're going to go in and call yourselves a cool band and play in that White House? I don't think so. Such an interesting story behind a song that, whether it was intentional or not, just captured the psyche of the times and landed powerfully at number one. And I would argue that American Woman should be in the conversation for greatest Canadian song ever, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you think on Facebook at Famous Lost Words or on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. I'll bet we're going to get some good responses on that one. I bet, yep. Tom, still to come? Why Gordon Lightfoot chose not to sue another songwriter and how Whitney Houston fits into that story. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we continue our celebration of the stories behind the greatest Canadian hits ever. On the last episode, Christopher, I don't know if you remember, we uh, Gordon Lightfoot talked about the creation of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. This time, he's talking about perhaps a song that's even more well-known for him, If You Could Read My Mind. It's another one of those airy kind of tunes. It has a a lot of space in it. It it just works. You you sing it on stage and the sound uh, fills up the room. It doesn't matter if you're playing in a hockey arena or a concert hall. It doesn't matter what it is, outdoors. It, uh, It just gets across and it's a great song. And I never knew the song was any good at all. Because the album that it was on was the first album I ever made for Warner Brothers, which was my sixth. And uh, we didn't even... Uh, the album was already dead. Uh, it, it came up to about number 65 in Billboard with an anchor. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, a radio station in Seattle went on the song and it became a hit. And I, I said, this is unbelievable. So this was my uh, first hit, which I had myself, you see. I'd had hits by other people doing songs of mine, but it was the first time that I had a hit with one of my own, like a a hit myself, eh? Number 63 with an anchor is a great line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A friend of mine, Stephen Bishop, said he put out an album that went wood (laughs) once. (laughs) (laughs) That's great stuff. One more thing, Christopher, about that song, if you could read my mind. When Whitney Houston had a hit with the song The Greatest Love of All, Mm -hmm. it had a line that sounded like Gord's song. Okay, so Adam, let's compare these songs. Here's the line from the Whitney Houston song in 1985. Okay, and now let's hear this line from If You Could Read My Mind from 1970. Never thought I could act this way So, Gordon hears that. He's working out in a club in 1985 in Toronto one day, and he hears the song, and he's going, wow, someone's redone my song. But then he realizes that it's a completely different song written by a songwriter named Michael Masser. So Gordon sues, but then he feels so bad about tainting Whitney Houston's success that he withdraws the suit and apologizes to Michael Masser, the songwriter. Wow. Which is a very classy move, considering that he had a very winnable case on his hands. And it speaks volumes about Gordon Lightfoot's character. 
Yeah. Has he ever articulated why he made the decision not to sue? Well, in the episode where where I chat with Gordon, and that yeah. would be around episode 319, we, I actually asked Gordon why he walked away from that. And what he says is he knew that Whitney was going through a lot of stuff at the time, and he didn't want to put any more, and he didn't want to take away from her achievement. Now, the thing is, wow. is that was 1985, and I'm not sure that people really did know what Whitney was going through at the time. No, no, I don't think so. Right, but that's the way he explained it, and maybe he called up Michael Masser, and he actually apologized to him for even starting the lawsuit. And he said, I'm sorry, this was wrongheaded of me. And I'm talking about, like, when I talked to him last year in 2019, he seemed to have absolutely no regrets about not suing. In fact, his only regret was originally intending to sue. That was his regret. Okay, now let's travel to August 1st, 1981. MTV signs on the air for the very first time. And of course, the first song they play, Christopher, is... Video killed the radio star. That's right. But what was the first Canadian band to get a video played on MTV? Loverboy? <laughs> no, oh. it was April Wine. The 14th video played on the first day of broadcast was this song. Just between you and me, baby, I know our love will be. That's Just Between You and Me, April Wine from 1981. Well, in this clip from that same year, singer-songwriter and master strategist Miles Goodwin (laughs) tears down the veil around one of April Wine's biggest hits. Do you feel up here, when you listen to uh, Just Between You and Me, is it the the hooks? Is it just the way the tune goes that you you can feel that that is the the tune from the LP to release as the 45? Well, it's the first single because everybody seems to like that song, okay? okay? Now, the programming right now, in the States especially, on AM radio is softer than it was six months ago. Where it's going to be six months from, months from now, nobody really knows, or nobody's saying, if somebody somewhere does. But right now, it's soft. So uh, if we had two choices, and one was rock and one was soft, and they were equally strong, it would be to our advantage uh, at this point to release the softer one. It's the only ballad on the album, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a wimpy kind of a ballad, I hope. It's not a piano ballad, it's a guitar ballad. Uh, and uh, it seems to, uh, to to be catchy, so we'll just see what happens. Uh, April Wine has always had success with singles, right back from I'm on fire for you, wouldn't want to lose your love, and you won't dance with me, etc., etc., you know. Because as a producer and as a guy that's been in the business for 10 years, I, I think I have a pretty good ear for uh, potential singles. Mm-hmm. And if I sit down and I and I have a choice of singing just between you and me, I know our love will be, or something else about my, you know, I just painted my house. I mean, the thing is, just between you and me is a catchphrase. You know, you look for the right words. You know, the masters of that, of course, were the Beatles, and it was always the new phrase of the hard day, night, hard, you know, ticket to ride, those kind of things. Very, very important. So I'm aware of that. And from this same interview, Christopher, we now present When Rock Stars Attack, <laughs> this is April Wine. Versus the city of Toronto, and it's fantastic. Toronto, there's a love-hate relationship with Toronto and April Wine. I mean, I know that. It's always been there, you know, from the early days when we played the high schools and the clubs. And Why is that? I don't know why. I don't know why. We've See, we've never really if indeed it's wined and dined the people of Toronto, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, and people uh, hold things against us, which is 
doesn't make any difference because uh, every album sells and we did 12,000 here and life goes on. Mm. It bothers me. I can't say it doesn't bother me. Uh, I, I, I honestly can take criticism. I can take criticism, you know, mm -hmm. but I can't take malicious shots, which Toronto gives to everybody. When can we expect to see Miles Goodwin and April Wine back in Toronto? We're in never, that... never going to play here again. Never? Never. Unless maybe this summer. <laughs> if they want us no i think that if the album does well you know we love to play canada even after 10 years mm -hmm. we still love it <laughs> that is so great we'll never play in toronto again uh, unless we come back this summer <laughs> that's so weird because there's such bitterness in what he's yeah. saying and then he goes yeah we might come back i never want to see you again until all is forgiven <laughs> Canadian hit from 1986, Kim Mitchell with Patio Lanterns. Tom, you had a chance to speak to Kim last year in a very fun segment that can be found in episode 307 of Famous Lost Words. Mm -hmm. Now, in that interview, Kim revealed how a couple of his songs found other homes. I'm, you know, not only a big music fan, but I'm also kind of a fan of the business of music. Which one of your songs is the one that you get the most requests for endorsements? Like, which one actually generates a bit of annual income for you? And I, this, this is too, if this is too personal, you don't no, want to talk no, about no, that's no, fine, no, but what, no, what would it be? Uh, coffee, uh, major coffee chain used Patio Lanterns once, right. so it's usually the big song. Um, Go for Soda, I don't think has ever been used. Uh, people always equate that with drinking and driving and right. soda, and it's never, the song was never about that. It was about two people in conflict. So you're in one of your blue moods, you want to have it your way, and I want it mine, all this debating going around, yeah. makes me thirsty for love. Might as well go for so It's like saying, let's just go somewhere. Like, let's just stop arguing. But right. It's said differently. Um, so Patio Lanterns, that, that's been used. Mm -hmm. I see that. Uh, and then, uh, oh, Miami Vice had, uh, there was a TV show a long time ago, Don Johnson. They used <laughs> Go For Soda. And I didn't even know it was happening. I think family guys used it. Uh, the, who are the guys out east? Um, uh, bubbles and all them. Right, they trailer did, park boys. Yeah, they did go for soda stuff. A lot of the times, I don't even know this is happening. It's it's uh, in Letter Kenny. Once I was watching Letter Kenny, and, and at the end of the show, the guy goes, "Yeah, too much John Cougar, not enough Kim Mitchell." <laughs> Just out of the blue, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so great. Imagine watching Trailer Park Boys, and they reference you and your music at the <laughs> you know at the end of a at the end of an episode. That's great stuff. And also, who knew that Go for Soda was about a relationship in turmoil. Odd. So this is interesting. This next song was a hit written by a Canadian, but performed by a huge international star. Okay, so we'll get to that in a sec. It's by one of our favorite guys, who is a Canadian singer and, a, and songwriter himself, Mark Jordan. I know Mark from his music in the 70s, hits like Marina Del Rey, Survival, I'm a Camera, many other songs. And Christopher, you know Mark personally, and we were able to talk to him several months ago, and we got to talking about a song that Mark wrote, but it became a big hit for a very big musician. Rhythm of My Heart by Rod Stewart, written by Mark Jordan and John Capek. Now, Mark explains how that song changed his life. Rhythm of My Heart was a demo that uh, John Capek, my writing partner at the time, and I did. Rod heard it, 
some years later, actually. We wrote it in 83, and he, he heard it six or seven or eight years after that. You know what a hit song is. It's the mm. right artist at the right time Yeah, in that career. And Rod called me. And then Rod said, I'm going to sing the shit out of this song. <laughs> Beautiful. And he did. And uh, yeah. it was, uh, well, it was a, that was a game changer for me. For but sure, I've, yeah. I've worked with him through the years as well. I see. Is he a, a demanding guy to write for? Does he ask for changes? Oh, yeah. Well, what, what is, give me an idea what he asks for. Well, uh, in Rhythm of My Heart, he wanted... Um, the, the the original was uh, across the street the river runs down in the gutter life is slipping away I ha- it was about a guy lying in the gutter <laughs> and uh, a marcher in lyric yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Rod uh, didn't didn't like that and and you have to respect that because artists know their their audience mm-hmm. and you can't say something that their audience won't accept and and so I, I rewrote that for him. There was a risk as I recall that that record was not going to come out at oh, the last minute, right? That's right. Really? Uh, George Bush went into a, he went in, he went Desert into Storm. Iraq, yeah. Rhythm of My Heart is an anti-war song. It's about a guy that wonders if love has g- disappeared from the face of the planet because he's in a war. Mm-hmm. But uh, the BBC, in their wisdom, said, we'll ne- we can't play this because there's references to war. Desert Storm only lasted three days, I think. Yeah, But very they brief. phoned me literally a week, bef- you know, a week before it was to come out. So we're not going to play it. Oh, and, no. and then they, the label went ballistic, and I, they, they, they said, you've got to rewrite this. And so I was... I think I was up at my mother-in-law's cottage. I was up at my mother-in-law's cottage in Lake Simcoe in Toronto, north of Toronto, and rewriting like a madman. And, uh, and did you felt like you were neutering your own, your I own did. child I did. I didn't feel yeah. good about it. didn't yeah. feel good. I ne- I'd never got anything I liked, and, and I never showed them anything. I thought it was just over, and then it, the war was over. So... A few minutes ago, you said that Rhythm of My Heart was a game changer for you. How do, how was it a game changer? Uh, suddenly, I, uh, you know, more people heard about me mm-hmm. as a songwriter. So I guess it it was very good for that part of my career. Mm-hmm. I and remember I, the day that uh, he recorded it. You came over to my place yeah. with the Cheshire Cat grin and yeah. said, Chris, <laughs> I got a rod. <laughs> and the thing is, I knew exactly what you meant. <laughs> but also on a very practical level, that really will pay the bills for many years to come. Am I am I correct in that? You got that right. Yeah, sure. And, and Christopher and I have talked about that. You know, it with did the world in life. those days. Yes, it yes. wouldn't today. Oh, okay, okay. That's interesting because because sometimes those songs have a long life. Right. Yeah. We were talking about Black Velvet and how sometimes in in these singing competitions, you know, like The Voice and American Idol and that kind of thing. If a song like that is played again, uh, Christopher, you reap the rewards of that. And and I'm sure that every once in a while that happens to you where a, a person might sing that Rod Stewart song. And as a result, you, you reap the rewards of that. And that's that's so cool that you can write one song and it can live forever, but it can also pay practical dividends to someone yeah. like yourself. No, it, it was a great time yeah. to have a hit. Great to talk to Mark Jordan about the song that changed his life and career, Rhythm of My Heart. Still to come, why the Beach Boys 
turned down a huge opportunity, which turned into one of the biggest selling worldwide hits ever for a very soft-spoken guy from Winnipeg. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we continue our celebration of the stories behind the greatest Canadian hits ever. Now, let's go to 1974. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun, but the hills that we climbed were just seasons out of time. Seasons in the Sun with Terry Jacks, one of the biggest hits this country has ever produced. And Terry has a long and winding and extremely fascinating tale about the making of that song. Al Jardine and I have been good friends for a while. He's one of the Beach Boys. And they hadn't had any hits for a while. And um, at the time, uh, we were doing pretty well in the States, the Poppy family, where we had three big hits, uh, Billy and That's Where I Went Wrong, Where Evil Grows. So um, I'd talk, been talking to Al, and he said, uh, would you be interested in uh, producing us? And I said, well, I don't know, you know, what would Brian think of it? Because, like, Brian Wilson's done all their productions, and he's, like, a great producer. He said, well, we'll talk to the guys. So he talked to the guys, and he came back, and he said, uh, yeah, it'd be neat. You know, they'd like you to uh, produce a record for us. So I went home, and I thought about it for a while. Um, and this one song has been, had been in the back of my mind for about 10 years. And it was originally a Jacques Brel song called, in French it was called The Dying, and it was about an old man dying. So I rewrote it about a young person dying, and I wrote the last verse and some of the chorus, and... Um, changed it, uh, the arrangement, quite a bit. And I phoned down, I says, I got the song for you, you know, and I played for them, they really liked it. And uh, we hired all the best musicians in LA for the session. I flew down and we cut a great rhythm session. Carl Wilson did the singing on it. He's the guy who did for, you know, Good Vibrations and all that. And and we got the background vocals on and everything was really groovy. And but Brian wouldn't sing the high part because he didn't want to sing high anymore or something. So I had to put a trumpet on. But anyway, the whole session was sort of taken three days. I was down there eight days, and there was just some weird vibe things that started. And um, I was so enthused and so driving, and I wasn't getting that kind of reaction back. They weren't hungry enough. They've had so many hits. And uh, I never put the sweet and never put the strings on or anything, and I just that was that. I've still got the tape at home. Wow, I love the way he tells that story. So that Beach mm-hmm. Boys version, which is unfinished, has recently popped up on YouTube. So let's have a listen to that. Though your lover was my friend, a dear friend's wife, it's hard to die. When all the birds are singing in the sky. Oh, wow, even the lyrics are different. Adieu, Francois, it's hard to die. <laughs> wow. So the Beach Boys, the Beach Boys, maybe rightly so, decided not to record that song. I'm not sure it suits them, but Terry Jacks was mystified at their decision. That was strange because it could have been a hit for them. I'm glad the way the things worked out. Terry Jacks right there talking about the massive 1974 hit, Seasons in the Sun, which went on to sell 14 million copies. An unbelievable wow. number. I think it kind of worked out okay, the fact that the Beach Boys didn't cut it. Yep. No, wow. com- no complaints, I'm betting, from Terry, right? Absolutely. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. And Tom, this has been so much fun delving into some of the greatest Canadian hits of all time. Have you got more, please? 
I sure do, Christopher, as we celebrate the history of Canadian music on this special edition of Famous Lost Words. So, last year, I had the great pleasure of talking to Gino Vanelli, and his story is amazing. Check out that episode. It's number 316. And Tom, he could get into a lot of detail in his answers. So, ladies and gentlemen, pull up a chair and listen to Gino with the story of the classic song, Black Cars. Black Cars is really not about a car at all. Right. You know, it's about this woman that walks up and down Sunset Boulevard in, in a black fur and a kerchief and with dark sunglasses that's got yarrow root makeup on her wrinkles and has missed the boat in life. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's a very, very, I'd say sympathetic but maybe pathetic sight. I see what you're saying, yeah. And um, she, and this is a true story, she keeps to the shady side of the street. So when I went back home and I started waxing my black Z28, I noticed that the shady side of the car always looks better than the sunny side, especially with a black car. And that's why its black cars look better in the shade. So you extrapolate that to a person who you see, you can see the wrinkles, you can see the creases. She's just a hyperbolic sense of ourselves. Yeah. She, oh. she's, everyone fears that, everyone fears mm-hmm. aging, everyone fears, fears not looking presentable, and everybody wants to look their best. It's just that she, somewhere along the line, she lost her logic, mm-hmm. and her emotions took over. Right. And, and she never came to, came to a position with herself and said, you know what, <laughs> i got to drop this. Yeah. <laughs> Gino Vanelli from 1984 and Black Cars. Okay, let's spring forward a whole generation and then some to talking about Alessia Cara. Tom, in a really short period of time, this 23-year-old Brampton native has built a fantastic career. She started with a Billboard Top 10 album, just like Shawn Mendes, with her debut Know-It-All. She won a Grammy for Best New Artist, and do you realize that she was the first Canadian in the 60-year history of that award to take it home. Wow. Her best known work is probably her feature performance on Zed's Stay. And you know what, Tom? I listened to it yesterday and I was the 410,771,986th person to do so. <laughs> For real. Incredible. Anyway, with a nod to renowned children's author Maurice Sendak, one of her most engaging songs is called Wild Things, which she talks about in this interview. What is your favorite song on the album? Ah, uh, that's hard. That's re- it always changes, but I, I really like Wild Things right now. Okay. I think I always like Wild Things because I love the message. And what is the message? The message is like self-acceptance. It's like an anthem for people who feel weird or feel out of place or just feel like they might not like themselves too much. It's just basically saying like we don't care what anyone says. We're going to just like... I'm tired of like, you know, conforming to people's rules. I just want to love myself, and I think anyone can relate to that, whether you're young or old or whatever. Leave us alone, cause we don't need your policies. We have no apologies for being from you Oh, Alessia is so good. Her songs always come packed with a deeper meaning, usually empowerment, which speaks loud and clear to girls and young women everywhere but also to everyone, quite frankly. And she's very inspiring to a lot of people, but also incredibly talented. Great stuff. Tom, it's time now for one of the biggest-selling Canadian songs of all time, which is fitting because it had the greatest collection of Canadian artists on one record that have ever been assembled. That's Tears Are Not Enough by Northern Lights from 1985. Well, the man who assembled all of this, 
course, was David Foster, the producer, and he co-wrote the song as well, um, along with uh, Jim Valance and Brian Adams. David is a great storyteller, mm-hmm. and he has one for the ages to tell here about one of the biggest Canadian songs of all time. Northern Lights, David, what did Quincy Jones say to get you involved in what became Northern Lights? Well, that was at the period I was living in Vancouver in West Van. I was sitting in my den, and he called and he said, I'm doing this crazy thing down here next week. Uh, he went on to explain, we are the world to me, because I had been living in Vancouver for some months. I was a little out of touch. And uh, he said, I'm doing it down here, and we got the A list, the A++ list. I'm electing you to do the same thing in Canada. And my first reaction was, wow, thanks for thinking of me, but Jesus, I mean, you've got the American Music Awards, and everybody's in L.A. We have a country that's twice as big, almost, as America. Yeah. And there's no award show going on in the, in the near future. He said, well, you'll figure it out. That's what he said. <laughs> oh, man. I've seen the footage of you oh. uh, driving across the Lionsgate Bridge with a portable recorder. Did you really write the song like that? I really did. And I was scoring St. Elmo's Fire at the time. And it's the only time that I've ever been inspired, but I was inspired just by driving over the Golden Gate Bridge. It just gave me such a feeling. It was one of those crisp, I don't know, it was probably in wintertime, I think, crisp winter days. And I wrote the basis for Tears Are Not Enough, and I sent it to the director of St. Elmo's Fire, thinking that he would love it, and he called me back and he said, I hate it, it's not right for my movie at all. <laughs> so, a day or two later, I guess is when I got the call from Quincy, and I just happened to be around Brian Adams at that time. I called Adams, he called Jim Valance, and uh, I said, look, I got this melody that's a whole song, the director hates it, Brian said, yeah, we can work with that. So Brian Adams and Jim spent all night, as you probably know the story, Yeah, they spent all night uh, working on the lyrics to my uh, song. And it's sometimes six in the morning, seven in the morning, Brian Adams dropped off a cassette to my house and left it on the doorstep. And I played it and I just loved it. He just, they just killed it with the lyric and the additions he had made to the melody and they, yeah. they had sung over my demo. Right. And uh, so now we were up and running and uh, then the director from St. Elmo's Fire calls me. That's the punch. This is the punchline. <laughs> yeah. And he says, oh my God, oh my God, I've made such a mistake. I put the music up against the film. It's f***ing brilliant. It's beautiful. I, I'm so excited. And I said, uh, <laughs> without even hesitating, I knew I was not in a pickle because I just said, dude, you snooze, you lose. That melody is gone. Mm. But I'll write you something else. Wow. And uh, he was very upset. And then I ended up writing what became the love theme from St. Elmo's Fire, so it kind of worked out good. Who was the toughest to get? I don't remember. I, I, I know that I was shocked when Joni Mitchell and Neil Young decided to be part of it. I mean, that was shocking to me. Yeah. Shocking only because they're so uh, elusive and unreachable and, you know, it was also one of my favorite moments of recording when uh, <laughs> I told Neil Young he was out of tune. And he said, hey man, that's my sound. I just <laughs> love that line. <laughs> Very cool stories. Wow, I love that. We apologize for the sound quality of that. That was Christopher in conversation with David on the phone, and, and it sounded like he was 10,000 miles away. But honestly, that well, was a great, great <laughs> chat with him. Great chat. <laughs> A little on the crude side, technologically, right. shall we say? Yeah. Adam, don't don't hate me. <laughs> but uh, as, but you're right. It's a great story, and hopefully people could hear it all right. 
Tom, that is it for this episode of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Our show is produced, as always, by Adam Karsh. Now, I'm sure that there are lots of other Canadian songs and artists that you would like to hear from. Sure. So let us know. Absolutely. Let us know on Facebook at Famous Lost Words or on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. And I have to tell you that there are still lots of stories behind some big Canadian hits that we just couldn't cover in two episodes. So I promise that we will sprinkle those stories into future episodes. And don't forget you can support Famous Lost Words by listening to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 